Man, church is not only great memories for me, but church is fun. Man, it's just fun to get together with people and just meet people for the first time that I know are believers in Christ. And there's just a unity, man. We just feel like family. And I thank God for our music ministry, our musicians, our choirs, using their gifts and abilities to lead us in worship every, every single week. You know, I just wish people outside would have what we have inside. And what I mean, I mean, even as Christians, I, I, I feel so... So sad for people, I, I see them everywhere. I mean, when I was walking and doing that prayer walk and we were quiet and we were praying for our community and praying for healing, I'm walking from here all the way down to Oak Street there by the hospital, Planned Parenthood, and just over the 39 years of being here, I just remember and see how this place has changed and how there's different things going on and just, just praying for healing. I see so many sad people. I, I go on X and I see pastors talking mean to each other, pastors I know and respect and Christians talking to each other on social media in just a terrible way. And I, I know why people don't wanna to go to church. When they see us fighting with each other and talking bad about each other, why would they wanna come? And I see all that when I'm in public buying something, I'm just in line talking to folks and you can kind of see the sadness on their face when you watch the news and you hear about all the division and all the stuff, it's just sad all the time. And so when I look around, I see a lot of hurting, needing people. Us being here on this corner, as you can imagine, every day here at the church in the church office, we got people that are coming in, they're just hurting, all kinds of stories, just a mess. And sometimes dealing with all that can make you feel very overwhelmed make you feel very overwhelmed and when you listen to the news social media very overwhelmed very sad and I just want those people to have what I have you know not religion not about being a Baptist but having a personal relationship with God Almighty through Jesus Christ I want them to have that I, I believe that having a relationship with the one who made you God Almighty is really the only solution to all the needs and issues in our town having a relationship with God through faith and trust in his son Jesus Christ Man gives us peace. We know where we came from. We have purpose now. We're not afraid to die because we know heaven's our eternal home. We know we're just passing through, but we're to make a difference for good while we're here for Christ and be that light in the darkness and be the salt of the earth. And when I think about the kind of job we're doing as Christians, I go, wow, there's so many needs. It could be overwhelming. And I think about how God had many ways to get his truth out to a hurting world. He could have used angels to tell this good story. They'd been much more obedient and efficient than we are. He could have spoken directly from heaven to every person to get the job done to tell them about his son, Jesus. No doubt God had many other options to get his message out. And, and I can't tell you why he chose the way he chose. But I know from the text we're going to look at today and many other scriptures in the word of God, that God's method for ministry, Jesus, the son of God's method for ministry to get the good news out to hurting lost people was to go through his disciples, was to go through followers of Christ, were to go through us. We're, we're plan A, there is no plan B. Disciple, that means a learner, a student, a follower of Jesus Christ. We've been studying through the book of Luke. We're now in chapter six, but we saw in chapter five where he called his first disciples. And he said, I want you to come and be fishers of men and women and boys and girls. Cast the gospel net. Tell people about the goodness of God and catch people for Jesus. Tell them about how they can be forgiven and have a purpose and have peace and have heaven for their home. And we saw in chapter 5 last week, verses 12 through 39, how Jesus gave his disciples their first fishing lesson. 
And then in chapter six, he continues those lessons. He gives more lessons and we start learning more about what it actually means and looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus called them in, he trained them up, he sent them out. That's what we do here. Our, our, our mission statement, love, connect, serve. We got that from the great commandment and the great commission of Jesus Christ. Bring them in, share the gospel, train them up, get them in connect groups to study the Bible, discipleship groups, train them up, help them find their gifts in their ministry, help them be Christian leaders, and then send them out to their mission field to make a difference. God still does that today. Chapter six continues the fishing lessons, but we also see a profile of what a disciple, a follower, a learner, a student of Jesus actually looks like. So you could kind of say this section is kind of like a discipleship manual, a description of what your life will actually look like if you actually follow Jesus. Let's be honest, part of the problem in our country is our churches, and part of the problem in our churches is we have people that say they believe in Jesus, and yet they don't live for Jesus. Would it be Christ-like, and we're not Christ-like at all. The problem is we need followers of Christ who actually follow Christ, not just show up in church. That, that's the problem, and so we're gonna see a discipleship manual. It's a description of how committed followers of Christ should try to live their lives. And I hope you see today, it's not just about outward actions and behaviors, but it's about an inner attitude of the heart. For the disciple, the follower of Jesus Christ, it's the attitude of the heart that's so important. Because if you want to change behavior, you change the heart. That's why we do so many ministries in our community, to build relationships with folks, to help them know we care about them, we love them, and then we can soften hearts so we can tell them about Jesus Christ who will change their heart and change their life and will change their behavior. So Jesus Christ is very upfront and he explains there's a great cost in following him. He said, but the blessings for following him are much greater than the cost. And so I want us to see what a disciple's attitude and what his lifestyle looks like, okay? Now we're gonna look at the 26 verses here, but I'm gonna jump to the last passage to read with you for time's sake, and then we're gonna go back to verse one, all right? So if you're able, would you please stand with me out of reverence and honor for God's holy word. Verse 20. Looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. You may be seated. And I read that and I go, whoa, wow, and whoa, whoa, that's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of stuff. We're gonna come back to that, that passage at the end, but I wanna go back to the beginning, verse one, and I want us to see the profile of a disciple, a follower of Christ, and I'm gonna go back even to the last chapter five we looked at last week. A disciple, we learned that a disciple reaches out to all people. Uh, I listed the verses we looked at last week, how Jesus, well, who did he go after? He went after a leper, 
who, those who were rejected. He went after a man who was paralyzed. His friends did whatever it took to get him to Jesus. He went after the helpless. He went after a tax collector, those people who were despised and nobody wanted anything to do with. That's who Jesus went after. So if we're going to follow Jesus, we got to be willing to love those that the world rejects, discards. we got to look past the titles, the labels. And we must love people the way he loved them. We must serve people the way he served them. And we must do things the way he did things. So we first see a disciple reaches out to all people, does whatever it takes to bring them to Christ, at least point them to Christ. We don't save them, but we cast the net. We share the gospel message. Second thing to see here is the disciple focuses on relationships. We're going to see that in chapter 6, starting with verse 1, how a disciple focuses on relationships over man-made rules. So we see in verse 1, it says the Pharisees, the religious experts of the day, were following Jesus, actually spying on Jesus and his disciples to try and trap him. And they accused him of breaking the law by plucking heads of grain out of the fields on the Sabbath because they were hungry, right? Chapter 6, verse 1, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And as you read on, Jesus tells a story by bringing the example up from the Old Testament when David, King David and his men went into the temple and ate consecrated bread, which is only reserved for the priest to eat. He said, hey, one of your heroes in the past did something you said was unlawful on the Sabbath too. And in verse 5, he says to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Gospel Mark tells the same exact story, but he adds this phrase. He says the same thing. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And then Mark records that Jesus saying the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so right here, there's a couple, there's so many truths here, but just a couple of truths I want to bring out. Jesus is saying first that the Sabbath was intended to help people, not to burden them. To help people, not to burden them. Sabbath means a day of rest. We stop and we rest and we take time to worship and to rest and recharge. And he, he, Jesus let him know the disciples did not break God's law. They only violated what the Pharisees said, their strict interpretation of it. He reminds them of the original intent of the law was to help people, give them a day of rest, not to burden people. Look at verse 6. On another Sabbath, you see what happens there? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everybody. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful? on the Sabbath, do good or do evil, to save life or destroy it. He looked around at them all, and then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his, man was, and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Here again, another Sabbath, watching him, you know, to get him in trouble. And again, Jesus lets them know that the Sabbath was not intended to put a burden on people, it's actually there to ease their burden. And then he did healing. He showed compassion on the Sabbath, and the religious leaders got mad about that. You know, so Jesus is letting us know the Sabbath was intended to help people, not to burden them. Second, I think Jesus is saying he, he's in charge of the Sabbath. He says the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's in charge of the Sabbath. He wrote the law. He certainly has oversight of how the law is to be enforced. And yet the Pharisees made their religion, 
And they're religious laws, they're man-made laws, more important than Jesus, more important than loving and showing kindness to people. They elevated the, the, the religious laws over the relationship. And because of that, these religious leaders who Jesus always criticized, he never criticized the sinners. He was always went after the sinners and told them the truth and said, go and do no more. It's the religious leaders that he had the hardest time with and it, because they, their hearts became hard. They became indifferent to the needs of the people because they were so focused on the man-made laws that they missed the sight that the law had intended. It was there to help people, not be a burden to people, to point people to Christ, to let them know. The Old, Old Testament law, all the laws were written to help us understand in the Old Testament how far we fall short, how we cannot make it on our own and how we need a savior to come save us, how there needs to be a sacrifice so we can find forgiveness. But here we see Jesus is in charge of the Sabbath. We also see, I think Jesus saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He's pointing to the rest that Jesus provides. He's saying, I did all the work necessary for your salvation by dying on the cross for the sins of the world. And when you repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in him, you rest, we rest spiritually in him. We have peace with God. We have purpose in, in this world. We have heaven as our eternal home. We're set free in Christ. And so we follow the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ, and we find our rest in him. But a disciple not only reaches out to all people and does whatever it takes to point them to Christ, we focus on the relationship over man-made rules. Also, a brief verses here about Jesus. We see a disciple prays and multiplies. A disciple prays and multiplies. We see in verse 12 and 13, one of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. And he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Here again, we see Jesus praying all the time. We're always seeing Jesus go out by himself and pray, and here we see him praying all night long. If Jesus, the Son of God, the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us, needs time to pray, talk to his heavenly Father, man, we do big time. But we see a disciple prays and multiplies. He called people in, he trained them up, and he sends them back out to multiply. That's what we do. So Jesus prays all night. He calls 12 men in to be his disciples, and he designated them as apostles. What's the difference between a disciple and an apostle? I was hoping you wouldn't ask that question. But here, here uh, now here, here's, the, here's just a, a basic answer to that. Every apostle is a disciple, a follower of Christ, but not every disciple is an apostle. The disciple actually means learner, follower, student of Christ. Every believer, every Christian is a disciple. The word apostle here means one who is sent out, one who is sent out, one who is given the authority of the one who sent them. A select group of early believers here in the New Testament, the 12 apostles, of course, Judas, you know, ended up Balin got another one, the apostle Paul, another one was called an apostle because he had the Damascus experience with Jesus and saw him. But these were special men that were given authority to perform signs and wonders and share the revelations in the New Testament. Some Christian groups still today use that term apostles. We don't, but a lot of some groups do, and they, they reference apostle to their missionaries because they're sending them out. But to me, those apostles do not qualify as the 12 apostles here in the Bible. But anyway, it's just a matter of personal preference, whatever, but that's just the difference. Apostle means sent out one, disciple means any, any Christian. Every Christian is a learner, follower, student of Jesus Christ. What I want you to see here, though, is that there was men, and these men were common men from a variety of personalities and backgrounds. Four of them were fishermen, 
They were not educated in the religious schools of their day. All these men, none of them really had any influence. He called Matthew the tax collector that everybody hated. So I want you to see that because God still calls common people, boys and girls, men and women, to get the job done, to be used by him to share the gospel. Jesus prayed all night. He called them in. He trained them to fish for men and women, boys and girls, and he sent them out to multiply to make other disciples who would make other disciples. That's why we're even here to this day. God still chooses faithful men and women from a variety of backgrounds into his service to multiply his grace to other people. So our mission as disciples, followers, students, learners of Jesus Christ is not just to cast the net. I mean, we gotta share. How are they gonna know if they don't hear and how are they gonna hear if we don't go? So we gotta cast the net, share the gospel. We gotta ask for a response. Do you believe or don't we believe? I think we need to ask for that response. But once they respond to believe in Jesus Christ, we got to disciple them so that they'll reach out to other people because they have a ministry, a platform, a circle of influence you and I don't have. So they can reach others, pray and multiply. That's what our, first, our very first building, seven year plan was building, our, getting stronger as a church, getting people connected in small group Bible studies and in discipleship groups. You see, there's a flyer here. We started six weeks ago. For a year, we're asking men and women to be in groups, men with men, women with women, commit to a year going through these studies, these books, six books together, helping us grow as a Christian and be able to share with other people. This coming Wednesday, we just finished our first book. We're starting a new cycle for those that want to come in and join and commit for a year, or maybe you just want to figure it out, see if you want to or not, see what it's all about. This coming Wednesday night, info's right here. From 6.30 to 8, you'll hear testimonies of those who have been in small groups, how God's been working in their life. And so if you're still interested, you can come and start. We're starting a, a, a whole new year-long discipleship for those who are going to get in now. So, this, you know, we're serious about this. So a disciple reaches out to all people, focuses on relationships over man-made rules. A disciple prays and then multiplies, shares the gospel, helps them understand what it means to follow Christ so they can go do the same for others. Here's why I want to camp out the rest of my time. A disciple adopts God's values and rejects the world's values. We just read that in the beginning. A disciple adopts God's values and rejects the world's values. Jesus' sermon here in chapter 6 is sometimes called the sermon on the plain or the sermon on the plateau or the sermon on the level as compared to the sermon on the mount that we probably had heard about in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Reason being here in verse 17, it says Jesus went down with them and stood on a level plain. He was coming down from the mountain speaking on a level plain. They call this the Sermon on the Plain or Plateau. Content is very similar to Jesus' sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We call Sermon on the Mount because there it says he went up on the mountainside and sat down. Some students of the Bible say that this is a different record of the same event. This is just a condensed version of Matthew's sermon. I mean, Matthew's version of the sermon, of Jesus' sermon. Other Bible students say, no, they're two different sermons. I mean, they're, they're different. I mean, there's only four Beatitudes here. There's nine Beatitudes in Matthew's version. So it seems more likely they say that Jesus preached a similar sermon in two different occasions and making a few changes to better fit the audience of the people. You know what I say? Yes to both of those, all that. I, it doesn't matter. Either way, it doesn't matter. It's in the Bible. It's the word of God. Was that a summary of his other sermon? Was it two different sermons? I don't, I don't care. 
It's his sermon. It's his message. It's in the Bible. And here's two, verse 18. I like these, this verse before he gives the sermon. Those, those troubled by evil spirits were cured. And verse 19 says, because power was coming from him and healing all of them. All these people who had evil spirits and needed help, they came to him and all of them were cured. There was a great display of miraculous healing from Jesus, showing evidence that he is who he said he is, that he's the Messiah, that he is tenderly and lovingly wanting to draw everybody to himself. And I think he did that on purpose because he knew he's getting ready to give them some hard truths. He was getting ready to tell them that if you follow me, it's going to be a tough road. He's getting ready to challenge everything that people think is normal and flip it upside down to show how things really are from God's perspective and how they will be in eternity. What he's getting ready to tell them are not very popular teachings. So I think he did all those miracles to me just kind of say, hey man, I am who I said I am. You need to listen to me. What I speak to you is truth. Jesus knew that it's better to speak the truth and not be popular with people than to speak lies and have everybody like him. And I wish all our politicians would pay attention to that. Jesus' sermon shows Jesus' disciples, all believers in Christ, how we should live. In verses 20 through 26, Jesus sets forth the contrast of the blessing and also the woes in four different groups of people. He's addressing his disciples, right? So we should see the primary intent here is giving encouragement and instruction to believers. He's saying it's going to get tough for you, but God will bless you if you do it my way, but I want you to know if you do it my way, the world's going to hate you. The world's going to hate you. Now, when he says blessed are you, to be blessed means to have inner joy and happiness because God's favor is on you. But he also gives them a second application for those who are caught up with the ways of the world. He warns them, if you get caught up in the ways of the world, there's, there's a coming reversal when you will be left empty if you do not repent. And so woe are you. The word woe means to have sorrow and pain because God's against you. You're, you're against God, now God's against you. So woe, you're gonna have sorrow and pain. So Jesus is basically showing us how to be supremely happy or supremely miserable. If you wanna live happily ever after, then what we see here, Jesus says you must live decisively for God's values. You must adopt and live God's values and reject the world's values. To be a Jesus disciple, you gotta see that there's only two, only two ways to live. There's God's way and there's the world's way. And if you wanna be truly happy, you gotta commit to live God's way. Under the Lordship of Christ, he's your Lord, he's the leader, he's the authority in your life, he's the one you're following, he's the one calling the shots, not you. Two keys to understanding Jesus' words here are this. First, he's talking to his disciples. Now remember, these disciples have left everything. Peter left his business. Tax collector Matthew left his business. They left everything to follow him. And second, these men, they're suffering now. They're suffering because they, all, they're, because they are following Jesus. So when we read these verses, there's a deep spiritual foundation or basic, uh, basis here to these categories he's talking about. So when Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, he's referring to those who recognize that their greatest need in life is spiritual, not material. Blessed are you, happy are you if you realize you're spiritually poor, that you're a sinner, that you need a relationship with God. 
And that you're not focused on living for the things of the world, but you're living for Christ. Blessed are you who are spiritually poor and you know you need more than what you got. You know there's a God who loves you and cares about you and that's why Jesus came. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are not living for selfish pleasures and comfort in light of eternity. Because if you do, that's a foolish way to live. And please understand, Jesus talked many places about money, power, possession. Those things are not bad in themselves. God uses that stuff to make a difference. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil when you start living for these things. And that's why Jesus says, blessed are you who are spiritually poor and you know you're lost and you need a relationship with God. Blessed are you who hunger now. When he says that, he's referring to those here again who are spiritually hungry for God. Even as a young boy, I was hungry for God because I knew there had to be more life than what I saw. And the stuff of the world, man, it wasn't satisfying me. It was was just superficial. I knew there was something more For those who are hungering now are the ones that know there's something more. They know there's a God and they come to him and they learn to rely on him for all their needs and let their caring father take care of them. He says, if that's you, you will be satisfied. You'll be satisfied. When Jesus blesses those who weep now, blessed are you who weep now, he's referring to the, the father of Christ who's suffering in this world because you are following Christ. Blessed are you who weep now. Maybe it's sad. You had some friends who said they were your friends until you stood up for the word of God and now they left you. And you're, and you're suffering. Maybe you've not been promoted at work or people have left you because of your identification with Jesus Christ. He says, you will have the last laugh. You get the last laugh because God's gonna welcome you in to his plentiful banquet table one day in heaven. It's gonna be worth it. When Jesus says, blessed those, when men hate you, when they exclude you and assault you and reject you, your name is evil because of the Son of Man. Blessed are you, happy are you. You should rejoice at the highest level because great is your reward in heaven for that's how, the father, that's how their fathers treated the prophets. When we suffer for being a Christian and we suffer for Jesus' name, we're gonna receive a prophet's treatment and a great reward and a prophet's honor Prophets faced all kinds of issues. Sometimes they were standing alone. But now more than ever, Christians, we must stand up for Christ and share the truth in a loving way. That's why we're in the mess we're in as a country. Good godly people have done nothing, said nothing, and now we're in trouble. But blessed are you when people say mean things about you because you're following Christ. He's gonna reward us one day. And so spiritual poverty with Jesus is happiness and being blessed. But notice the contrast. Four woes, woes, sorrow, pain, agony, because God's against you. When Jesus says, but woe to you who are rich, he's talking about, again, spiritually, you think, you know, you don't need God. You have stuff. You don't need God. They're your gods, and your comfort's in your stuff. When it's all gone, you're going to be alone with no comfort. He says, woe to you who think you're rich, because you already have received your comfort. You got your comfort from stuff, from being your own made man, self-made woman. You don't need God. Well, that's all. That's all the comfort you're going to need. I mean, that's all the comfort you're going to get. And you're going to realize one day, man, that stuff could be here one minute, gone the next. When he says, woe to you who are well fed now, here again, he's talking about those, woe to you. I feel sorry for you when you have ignored your spiritual need for God, that spiritual starvation. If you took the time to listen, you'd realize there's something missing in your life and there's got to be more to life than what you see and hear. And you know that, but you won't take the time to actually listen to that and see what God's doing around you. You think you have it all and you don't need God. You're living high on the hog. Woe to you. Because when judgment comes, you will be hungry. You will be hungry because you had all, you, know, you, you had it all in this life, right? 
And now you have nothing in the life to come because you did not have Christ. When Jesus says, woe to you who laugh now, when those of you who just eat, drink, and be merry, could care less about God or Jesus or what he says, you're just doing what everybody else does and following the crowd, spend your time just laughing. And here again, God loves laughter. He loves, he's a, he's a fun God. I mean, just being in church has been some of the, the funniest times of my life. I've been in church. But he's talking about people who spend their life just eating, drinking, be merry, and forget God, forget Jesus. You're gonna, you're gonna mourn and weep. You're gonna mourn and weep. I feel sorry for you, woe to you. If you're living your life without God, without Christ, just doing the things of the world, what the world says is happy. And let's be honest, if you've traveled that path, you know that's not happy. You know that's not happy. Man, there's so many consequences to bad behavior. And so, but God says, you know, many places, there's gonna be weeping. He says, you're gonna be mourning and weep. In many places in the Bible, the judgment in hell is described as weeping and gnashing of teeth. People who eat, drink, and be merry and forget about Jesus and God, in the end, you will be sorry. You lived it up with the worldly pleasure and you're really empty when you think about it and you're gonna be in trouble. When Jesus says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. We're in a society that wants everybody to speak well of them. The, the selfies, the likes, the social media, the popularity, the platforms. Beware of living for all that stuff. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. He's saying the false prophets were praised back then. They were rewarded back then because people loved those false prophets, those false teachers, because they told them what their itching ears wanted to hear. He says, but in the end, those people and those false teachers and prophets, they perished in God's judgment, and so will you. So be careful you're living for popularity. And by the way, being popular does not mean that God's approving of what's going on. Just because you're popular, even as a pastor in a church, doesn't mean you have God's favor on your life. Be careful about that. Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he's teaching us through the word, that the blessed life, the happy life, is exactly the opposite of what most people think. There is a greater, longer-lasting happiness with Jesus plus nothing than with everything of the world minus Jesus. The happiness of everything minus Jesus is just temporary, just our time here on earth. But the joy of Jesus plus nothing, that's eternal. That's eternal. Jesus, the Messiah, he, he's the great moral teacher. He curses what the world thinks is good and blesses what the world thinks is bad. And what I want to ask you to do is you look around. Your own life, your friends, the world, who's correct here? The world? Is the world way got it right? The way we're treating each other, the way we live, what we live for? We got it right? Look at the mass. Look at the church even, the churches. Who's correct, the world or Jesus? Jesus says there's a trade-off here. On the one hand, you can choose him in the hardships of life that sometimes come with following him, and you're going to receive an ultimate reward and glory there in heaven. Or you can choose life without him and pursue an earthly life of pleasure, only ultimately to suffer woe eternally in hell. I mean, Jesus is teaching us in spiritual terms about delayed gratification versus instant gratification. Instant gratification, we all gotta have it now, now, now. We know that gets us in trouble. That always ends in trouble. But you're free to choose. You're free to choose, but you're not free of the consequences of those choices. When we choose delayed gratification until the proper time, and here again, God's not against things. 
or money. He blesses us with those things. He uses those things to help people. And yet we love things and use people. God wants us to use this stuff to love people. And yet we, we love the stuff, the things, and we use people to get more stuff. And we wonder why we're a mess. See here how Jesus thinks about values? He doesn't value what the world values. He values what God values. And he blesses those who do the same. I mean, Jesus throughout, even in the book of Luke, we're going to get to it in chapter 9, but he teaches this concept over and over again. In chapter 9, verse 25, Jesus says, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very own soul, his very own self? He's saying your soul, that's the real you. Your body's just a shell. My body's just a shell. It's going to die one day. But the real you is your spirit, your soul. And your soul, you know, your, your soul possesses infinitely more value than everything in the world combined. The value of your soul, when you give your soul and life to Christ, is more valuable than everything else is valued in the world. Jesus also in Luke chapter 12, which we'll get to probably in a few weeks or months, he says this. Watch out, be on your guard against all kind of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And yet our world says, oh yes it does. The one with the most toys wins. And I always say, no, the one with the most toys still dies, you know, still dies and you leave it all behind. Nobody who cares about it or wants it. Abundant possession does not determine the quality of your life. Abundant possessions do not determine the quality of your life. Abundant life comes not from things, but comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ. He came to give us an abundant life, a life of purpose here on this earth, an abundant life in heaven for eternity. Jesus is telling us the way the world values money and things is ultimately soul destroying. And he repeatedly teaches us the dangers of riches and possessions and popularity and power. Now, God can use all those things, and he uses powerful people and people who are popular, and he uses possessions and riches to do good. But when that's your driving force, that's what you live for, that's your love, you're in big trouble. Luke 6 presents an exchange. He said, you're going to have to make an exchange here. Follow Jesus, yes, and suffer now, but you will be rewarded later and for eternity. Or don't follow Jesus now and seek pleasure now that the world has to offer and you will suffer later for eternity. Jesus is drawing the line, and he wants us to examine ourselves. So my question for me and for you is this. What side are you on? What side are you on? Now, I know some of you are going to say, oh, I'm really on neither. I'm kind of like in the middle. I'm not poor or hungry, not sad. I'm not really popular. What I mean by that is I'm not anti-God or anti-Jesus. I mean, I'm here in church, right? So I'm not really... I'm not really spiritually poor. I, I know there's somebody out there. I, I, you know, I want, maybe I'm a seeker. I, I'm not there, but I'm, uh, uh, you know, but I'm also not rich, well-fed, popular either. You know, I'm not, I'm not poor, hungry, not sad, but I'm also not rich, well-fed, thinking I don't need God. I'm, so I'm kind of in the middle. I'm not sold out, not really following like I should, not really obeying like I should, but I'm not anti I'm not anti-church. I just don't go very often. I go whenever I feel like it. Jesus' teaching says, no, you can't be in the middle. You either got to be for him or against him. There is no middle ground. Jesus is forcing us to get off the fence and decide, are we living for this life and its temporary pleasures, or are we living for Jesus and his eternal pleasures? 
And if you want to live happier ever after, you got to see it. Here again, there's only two ways to live. You cannot, I mean, I mean, there's only two ways to live. You can live for the things and pleasure of this world. That's your choice, which are destined to perish. Or you can submit yourself to Jesus Christ and live for his kingdom, the things of God, which will last forever. There is no middle ground. Middle ground is not submission to Jesus Christ. You either love him or you don't. You're for him or you're against him. There's no middle ground. And so to live happier ever after, to be truly happy, you and I must adopt a eternal view of life. We gotta see this life, even here on earth, that there's an eternal view of life. We gotta embrace eternity without an eternal perspective. What I mean by that, you gotta know there's more to life than what you see just here on earth. That the Bible says to be absent from the body, when our body dies, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord Jesus Christ for the Christian. When you have an eternal perspective, I mean, if you don't have an eternal perspective that there's a heaven out there one day and there's a hell out there one day, Jesus' words make no sense if you don't have an eternal perspective. Why do you wanna be poor and hungry and sorrowful and hated in this life if when this life is over, it's over? There is no afterlife. And critics of Christianity will often say and scoff and say, you Christians, you just believe in that pie in the sky out there when you die, don't you? And the proper response is always, absolutely. Absolutely, because that's what the Word of God says, and I believe the Word of God is the Word of God, and we can get into why I believe the Word of God is the Word of God. And I believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And I tell him that, you know, and you're a fool not to believe that. The Bible says, the fool says in their heart, there is no God. Open your eyes, look at the evidence, look at creation, look at design. Listen to your own heart, what you know that's telling you there's gotta be more to life than what you see. The Bible is abundantly clear that the hope of the believer is with God and eternity not in this short life on earth. D.L. Moody had some statement where he said, this life on earth is all the heaven that the unbelievers are gonna see and know about. But this earth is the only hell the believer in Jesus Christ will ever see or know about. See, the believer knows there's a God who's gonna judge the world. And so we adopt a pilgrim's mindset we know we're passing through. This is not the end. When we die, it's not over. It's just beginning. But while we're here, we got a job to do. God has called us on mission to love people, to love him, to make a difference, to help people understand what it means to be a Christian. We desperately need to recover this eternal perspective in our day. We must live with the end in mind. Followers of Jesus Christ, we got to focus on the life to come. If all we do is focus on this life, we're gonna be depressed every single day. Don't focus on the pleasant, I mean, don't, don't focus on the fleeting pleasures of this present day. And there is no middle ground. So if you want to be happier ever after, Jesus tells us how, adopt and live God's values and reject the world's values. That's what it means to be a disciple. We reach out to all, we focus on the relationship, we pray and we multiply and we live for God and his values and we reject the world's values. We are the light in the darkness. We're the salt that keeps the world from decaying. That's what God's called us to do. Will you pray with me? Dear Father, again, we just thank you for your word and my prayer is we're not just hearers only of it, that you convict us, that you break us, and you give us courage to change to make a difference. Father, if we've got caught up in the things of this world, Father, forgive us.
Father, if you blessed us with the things of this world, help us to see it the way you do and use it to make a difference for eternity. We thank you you blessed us so, Father, we can be a blessing to others. But, Father, help us to have eyes, eyes of compassion for those who are hurting and lost. And, Father, I pray for those even here today who might not have that peace, knowing their sins are forgiven, that heaven's their home, that they can be a part of your family. That even now, from their heart, they talk to you and say, God, please forgive me. I'm a sinner, just like your word says. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He paid the price, the penalty of my sin. He rose from the dead because he truly is the Messiah. And today, I, I repent of my sins, and I believe, and I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the leader of my life, as the forgiver of my sins. He's the Lord of my life. He's the Savior of my life. Save me and help me to follow him the rest of my life. Father, for those who prayed that prayer, I pray and meant it. Give them a peace knowing that you heard it and you answered it. And Father, I pray there's so many maybe of us who got caught up in the things of this world. We're not sleeping at night. We're stressed out. That's all we think about. Father, I pray for healing. I pray we leave here changed. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.